Good afternoon. Hello. It's very good to welcome you all here. My name is Mark Oakley and it's my pleasure to be able to welcome you and to introduce today's forum speaker. Um, because of our shared interest in uh, poetry, uh, Malcolm Geit and I often end up at similar conferences and on the same panels. Uh, and every time I hear him, I'm blown away by his irresistible combination of knowledge, recall, and passion for life and for literature. He really is, and I don't say this about many people, a tsunami of insights. <laughs> he is an earthquake of energy and a monsoon of memory. Uh, I hope that was sufficiently poetic uh, for Malcolm. Um, he is a priest poet, he is chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge. He has a rock band called Mystery Train. He's part of a jazz poetry performance collective called Rip Rap. And he's much admired for his poems and for, as I say, his public speaking. He's the author of six books with two more on the way, including Waiting on the Word, a poem a day for Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. It seemed right then to ask Malcolm here uh, in Advent. As Stephen Fry might say, he is a veritable peach tree in the modest-sized orchard of imaginative clergy, <laughs> where most of us are very little saplings. He is a firefly in the dark night of saggy synods. Would you please join me in welcoming him today to the forum, Malcolm Guy. Wow. My goodness, I think yeah, we need a new collective noun, like a mostness of metaphor. <laughs> I, um, your peach tree analogy, or, or rather Stephen Fry, has suddenly put me in mind is a wonderful old uh, Delta Blues song, which has the telling refrain, if you don't want my peaches, honey, just don't shake my tree. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I think we're going to shake some trees, I hope. We're certainly going to think about roots and trees, amongst other things, in this uh, uh, next 40 minutes or so. So I want to uh, say, first of all, how heartening it is to see at this dark beginning of December a room full of people stepping out of the busyness and the throng and the rush to pause for a minute and contemplate Advent. To enter into that longing, that quietness, that darkness and waiting, rather than being simply swept along with the kind of the, the rush and the bling. I, I wonder if you could sort of imagine with me, I think the trendy literary critics call this a, a counterfactual um, or a, a parallel universe. Let's just imagine in some parallel universe where everything is pretty much the same as ours is, but one or two things are different that around this time of year, you're uh, in the crowded streets, you're getting onto a bus, people getting on, and you overhear a conversation, say, between two women sitting on the bus in front of you around this time of year, and one of them says, oh, I do love this time of year, just the beginning. Those first three weeks of December, they're so stress-free, it's lovely. And the other one's saying, yes, it's good, isn't it? I love the way there's just a little less fling and bling about the place, and the way they draw those curtains quietly across the front, the front of the shop windows. You know there are lovely preparations behind, but it's all very 
quiet and subfused. And, she's, and it's lovely not having so much pressure on the social calendar either. Is it, yeah, not too much rushing out. We can be at home, we can be quiet. And a special kind of calm seems to descend on the kids as well. It's nice not having them coming home from school completely hyped up. And, uh, you know, they've been doing very gentle, quiet meditations. They've been lighting a few candles in the darkness. They've been still, isn't it lovely? Yes, says the other. And it's just what you need. And then isn't it beautiful on Christmas Eve? I know we don't, we don't say Christmas during this season, of course. We always say, it's coming. But how on Christmas Eve, from that deep darkness, suddenly there's a great opening out. All the curtains in the shop windows are drawn. The lights are switched on only then on Christmas Eve. And there is that great beaming blaze, and it's lovely. And the other one says, yes, it's great. And 12 days is just about right, I think. 12 days is about as much Christmas as I can stand. Isn't it great? And we just love that contrast, isn't it? Can you imagine having that conversation? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Instead, of course, the reverse happens. We're kind of tired of Christmas before we get there. We've had so much flung at us. We've had so many exhortations to buy stuff and do stuff. And we somehow, there's no moment of transition. There's no moment of contrast. There's no moment when you can say those words which are perhaps the watchword of Advent. The people that walked in darkness have seen a marvellous light. In a sense, that's because there's been no darkness. You know this thing they talk about light pollution, um, that you know when you're living in a big conurbation, you, you can vaguely see what you call the stars up there as a sort of faint twinkle above above the, the, the yellow street lights, but you don't really see them. It's only when you get deep out into the countryside that you suddenly see, oh my goodness, so many, such myriad shining lights, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord in the firmament, showing forth, showeth forth his handiwork. You don't see that because there's too much of our own smaller manufactured lights getting in the way. So it's good to go deep out into the countryside sometimes on a clear, still night to see the stars at last. Well, if there is that, as it were, outward and visible light pollution, where ironically some lights prevent you from seeing other lights, how much more so is there a kind of mental and emotional and spiritual light pollution in this season? There are so many little fairy lights going off all over the place, so much bling going on, that we can't kind of focus on that great light that is coming, the light which is both beyond everything, shining in the face of the infant, and most amazingly of all, deep, deep inside each one of us, as the John reading at Midnight Mass reminds us, the light that lightens everyone that comes into the world. So we know, sort of with our heads, that Advent is to Christmas, if you like, what Lent is to Easter, that it's a season of preparation, that the church in her wisdom, as it were, always puts a fast before a feast. That's really important because we don't just fast, we're not world negating, you know, and the fact that you may give up some things for Lent doesn't mean the things that you've given up aren't good. They may be very good indeed, and you may finally appreciate their goodness with great gladness when Easter comes round, whether it's chocolates or anything else. You you set things aside, both in order to depend more deeply on God and then to receive those things back from his hands. You do that in Lent. There's a way to do that in Advent, though I don't think Advent is actually about abstaining from uh, 
physical comforts and foods in the way that you might in Lent. I think Advent is about abstaining from distractions, from sidelights and sidelines. I think Advent is a time for dwelling richly in the darkness and thinking as you wait for the light, what is it I really long for? What is it I'm after? Now, somebody, we don't know who, possibly as early as the seventh century, did this before us and prepared something for us in the most beautiful way. We have, in our inheritance as Christians, a set of prayers written to be recited in December. Uh, and they're called the Great O Antiphons. Do people know about the Great O Antiphons that come, come across them? They're called the Great O Antiphons because they're great, because they start with O, and because they're, they're, um, they're sung antiphonally on either side of Mary's Magnificat in the seven days leading up to, uh, to Christmas Eve. Now, the amazing thing about the Great O Antiphons, they are prayers, they are Advent prayers, because they say, oh, they call on Christ, and then every one of them says, Veni, come. And of course, it is from Veni, come, that we get the vent bit of Advent. Advent is the advent, the arrival, the coming. Our own prayer book, call it very beautifully, places Advent, as it were, between two great comings. When he came, in great humility at that first Christmas, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty, that we may rise to the life immortal. So a remembered beautiful coming in Christ, a longed for day when all the promises finally come true and the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. But surely those aren't the only venies, the only comings of Christ. Did he not say, I am with you always? the end of the age did he not say whatsoever you do for the least of these you do it for me did he not say this is my body given for you and every one of those is an advent he comes mainly to us in those who need us and whom we help he comes in bread and wine I believe he comes in all kinds of ways he may come in a sudden moment of beauty in a in a landscape we're looking at. He may come in the light of another person's face. We may recognize, even in those things, who he is. Well, going back to these O Advent antiphons, the person who wrote those, whoever they were, the anonymous liturgical genius and poet who gave us these, these great Advent antiphons, did the most amazing counterintuitive piece of abstinence ever. And I'm going to commend it to you, but, but don't, don't get me wrong, we could, I, could, I could end up talking about it. <laughs> He's my reputation. Uh, what did he abstain from? Extraordinarily, he abstained, at least through the first six of these great prayers, he abstained from the name of Jesus. The prayers were written AD, 700 let's say, but if you'll hear this, they're imaginatively BC. Of course, to be writing those prayers, he knew about Jesus. And, you know, he, like me, I'm sure like many of you, would want to say in your own language how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. I love 
my Saviour, and I am delighted to have and know that name. But would it not be good for me sometimes just to remember back into my own kinds of darkness to what it was I needed and longed for before I came to know him or know him better? to what it was that gradually came through to me if I've known him all my life, as I learned more and more about him. If I didn't know the name, if I was walking in darkness, what would I be longing for? Well, I have to say in this immense confusion, in the apparent kind of chaos of things, I would be longing for some kind of pattern, some kind of meaning, some kind of underpinning order something of what they used to call wisdom. I'd be saying, oh, wisdom, come. In my sense of directionlessness and the kind of directionlessness of our state and of international affairs, I'd be wanting some kind of lead, some kind of lordship, some kind of a sense of one who could give me a pattern for living. Oh, Giver of guidance, giver of prudence, come. I tell you what I would want, and I know the young people I work with at Cambridge would really want, and that is some kind of rootedness, some kind of deep-rooted connection with things. Often the roots of their own families are broken, their parents are divorced, often they've moved from one place to another. When they get a job, they know they're never going to be in the same firm for more than three or four years, and it'll look bad for them if they stay in one place. They'll move around. Where is my, my deep root, my radix, my root? Where's that? And I know certainly there are other images that would come to me if I didn't know the name of Jesus that I needed. Some sort of key to my soul. Something to give me closure on the bad things and to open up the real possibilities. Some kind of light in the darkness. Well, if you know the O antiphons, you'll know that every one of those things I've mentioned is actually prayed for. The first O antiphon doesn't say, Oh, Jesus, my sweet friend Jesus, come. It says, Oh, sapientia, Oh, wisdom, coming out of the mouth of the Most High, sweetly ordering all things, come. Oh, Adonai, come. Oh, Lord, come. Oh, Radix, oh, Root, come. Oh, Clavis, oh, Key, come. Oh, Orient, oh, light, come. And only at the very end of all six does it say, Oh, Emmanuel, come. And even that is a name with a meaning, God with us. And if in that abstinence, in all those times of praying, you just held back, when finally on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day itself, you welcomed Jesus by his true name. Wouldn't that name be filled again with hope and meaning for you? Wouldn't it have some content again? Because you'd waited, as it were, to be, for it to be filled. But it's very difficult to do that because um, we're getting you know, Christmas this, Christmas that, everywhere. I mean, I don't want to be controversial here, but there's a big thing going on, I noticed in America on Facebook, saying, put the Christ back into Christmas. And I understand why they're saying that. But actually, I'm actually saying, could we take the Christ out for a minute? <laughs> this is going to be great. So I went to that St. Paul's Cathedral. Bloke stood up there, dog collar him, told me I should give up Jesus for Advent. <laughs> well, I am asking you. Of course, I'm not asking you to give up 
all that he is and has been and will be for you as he comes into your life. But I am asking you, it's a bit like when I was struggling with maths as a school child, and I was never very good at it, and it was a natural temptation to copy the answer, as it were, from someone else, and you know, glance at the clever girl sitting next to her. And um, I tended to glance at her anyway. But, um, and the teacher would say to me, I'm less interested in the answer and in seeing your working out. I want to see how you did the sum. I'll feel better, you'll get a better mark from me if you show me your workings, even if you actually make the miscalculation at the end. And I sometimes feel that about faith, to be honest. I, I sometimes think that a lot of, there's a kind of shallow evangelism where you just run around and go, I've got the answer, the answer is Jesus, just say, say these Jesus words with me and we'll all be cool. And nobody, you've even forgotten what the initial problem was you're trying to solve. So maybe Advent is the time to get back in touch with the needs, with the X's, if you like, that you're trying to work out in the equation, <laughs> which may add up indeed, I believe will add up, to the name of Jesus. Um, so, curiously, as you're waiting, the waiting itself turns out to be fulfilling in a strange way. You get back in touch with your deepest needs, and that means you're more yourself. You're not, as T.S. Eliot says, distracted from distraction by distraction. The waiting turns out to be fulfilling. The longing when you get back in touch with it turns out to be a joy. The dwelling in darkness turns out itself to be a kind of rich and fruitful light. Those are all paradoxes. And they unfold out of the big paradox that the God of everything came down to be tiny in particular. And that is why, finally getting around to it, I think poetry is a wonderful way of creating that alternative advent for yourself, resisting all the, the, the rush and the distraction and the kind of fling and bling and actually creating that space of nurturing waiting. Because poetry handles paradox well. Poetry allows you to get deeply into those things and to let them dwell with you. So I have produced a book which gives you a poem a day, not just my own, um, you'll be relieved to hear, but uh, a wide range um, kind of great classic poems by poets you've heard of and, and half remember, you know, um, Edmund Spencer and John Milton and Keats and Christina Rossetti and George Herbert, of course. Uh, also some contemporary poets you might not know. Um, the great American contemporary poets, Scott Cairns and Lucy Shaw. Um, uh, great uh, poets from the 20th century that we ought to remember more. Great women poets, Ruth, Ruth Pitter, um, Anne Riddler. So I've got some of those, I've got one or two of my own. Um, I have poems that are specifically and explicitly Christian, but I have poems that aren't, but that seem to articulate that yearning and that longing or that light in darkness. So that's what I've been trying to do. And I've often paired them. I've kind of thought, let's take a really famous, well-known 16th or 17th century poem about one of these paradoxes, and let's put right beside it a really modern poem that take on the same thing, see what they have to say to each other. So that's the kind of range. So uh, I hope that's what you're about. That's what I'm going to try and do in the remaining time is just to open out a few little samples of that. Now I mentioned the O antiphons and as some of you may know, quite a long time ago now, I wrote a sequence of seven sonnets uh, in response to those O antiphons in kind of conversation with them. And I'm going to read one or two of those uh, for you now and intersperse them with these other poems that I've chosen. The seven antiphon sonnets which were originally in this book are now also in this one on the specific days that they were originally set for. But the difference with this is that I've, 
I've written a kind of prose meditation after each one, a, a little opening of it out, a kind of pointing out of a few things, the kind of things I've just been talking to you about now. So, what about all those other advents? When he comes, he comes in so many different ways. He comes to us, yes, officially labelled, in a beautiful covenanted grace, this is my body. But in my experience, he comes all over the place, from all over the place, in the most unexpected ways. And that's what, for me, O Sapientia is about, that O Wisdom. So I'm going to read you the collect, the, 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 the antiphon, and then I'm going to read you my sonnet about it. We'll just start it that way. Um, the antiphon says, O Wisdom, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. Come and teach us the way of truth. Prudentia, prudence in some versions. Come. Isn't that amazing? Reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. In Latin, omnia. Some people think that inclusive language and inclusive prayers were sort of a trendy invention of the kind of liberal 60s and 70s. Well, mightily, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, it doesn't get more inclusive than that. Uh, but then it's, in him all things were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. What I love about that particular antiphon is the way it senses that God's love and presence is in the way everything is ordered and put together. It's not to be found in this item or that item, but it underpins everything. And I, I tried to bring that out in this sonnet. So this is my sonnet, O Sapientia. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught or break the bread, except as I am broken. O mind, behind the mind through which I seek. O light, within the light by which I see. O word, beneath the words with which I speak. O founding, unfound wisdom, finding me. O sounding song whose depth is sounding me. O memory of time reminding me, my ground of being always grounding me, my maker's bounding line defining me. Come, hidden wisdom, come with all you bring, come to me now, disguised as everything. So there is a, an amazing, beautiful, kind of universal antiphon there. I'm not saying the Pope's on it, but the antiphon, omnia, all things. And that's, however, only one half of a paradox. In the next antiphon, as they're done in the order that they began to be done in the eighth century, and are still done today, after O Sapientia, O Wisdom, comes O Adonai. O Lord. Now, Adonai is a Hebrew word meaning Lord, and the antiphon makes an allusion to two particular moments in the book of Exodus. 
The antiphon says, O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. So you remember that extraordinary story, um, which is, I mean, the two verses in, 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 uh, in Exodus that are being alluded to here are, are Exodus 3 and verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of a bush, and he looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. The Lord said to Moses, this is later in, verse, uh, in chapter 24 and verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for your instruction. Both of those, the burning bush and the giving of the commandments, are alluded to in the, in the antiphon. And of course, in between those two events, is the whole story of freedom and liberation and drawing the, the slaves out from Egypt, the whole drama. It's an extraordinary moment in the Old Testament. And for many, many um, of the Christian commentators who reflected on it, that particular image of the burning bush, fully alive and ablaze and lit from within by the presence of the living God, and yet not consumed, still the good old bush, bush it always was, you know, with its particular roots and crinkly little leaves and none of its, none of its kind of patterns or wrinkles taken away from it in any way, a rooted bush, and yet a light. For many, that became an emblem or a sign of what would come from the promise that was uttered from that bush. Yes, he said, I've, I've heard the cries of the people, I've seen their, their pain, I feel compassion for them. And you remember in, in that bit in Exodus, it says, I will come down. I will come down. But actually that promise is never fulfilled in the book of Exodus. He doesn't come down, he sends Moses off to do the job. And uh, you remember Moses does a very canny thing, he says, um, if I'm, because the, 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 the one who speaks to him from the bush says, I am the God of your ancestors. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I'm, I'm sending you off to do this job in Egypt. And um, you know, of course, in the ancient world, names were very important. And the name linked to the nature. And if you knew the name of a God, you could in some sense call upon them and make them part of your own sort of way of doing things. It was a position of power to know a name. So Moses is standing on holy ground. He doesn't really know what he's dealing with. He's a bit scared and he not, doesn't quite know. He can't ask directly, oh, what's your name then? You know, not. So, so he comes up with a stratagem. He says, when I go to the children of Israel and say, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac, you're try, you know, said, said, said to do this, this and this, they'll say, what's his name? <laughs> Who shall I tell them sent me? A very indirect way of asking the name. And of course, you may remember the extraordinary answer that comes on that holy ground amidst the flames. Tell the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Or some people think it means I am who I am. I am who I will be. I am has sent you. Now you could say, that's a beautiful, nice sleight of hand on God's part, say, I'm not going to tell you my name. I'm just going to tell you I am. That's good enough for you. And there's a, you know, I'm not going to tell you my because if I tell you my name, I know what you'll do with it. You'll put it on a flag and an emblem. You'll use it as a big stick to beat other people with. So I've got the proper name. You haven't got the proper name. Allow me to bash you in the name of my religion. You know, maybe, maybe every time I give you my name, you, you diminish it into something. Can I give you my name? 
And yet, how will you do anything if I don't give you my name? Yes, I will give you my name. Nothing that comes from that bush can be untrue. It's all truth. So I am is the name. I am. If that really is the name, then that's the primal statement, isn't it? That's the primal statement beneath every other statement. Everything else we want to say about the cosmos or the universe or the unwinding of genes or enzymes or anything, ultimately it derives from I am. Think about what it would mean to say for a minute that that was the primal statement. It's a big thing. Because, of course, in our culture, in West, late Western decadent scientific culture, we've got to know, we think... We presume, we don't even examine this, we have a an, an, uh, received idea that the foundational, utterly irreducible first statement about anything is, it is. That's what we think. We think things are inanimately, you know, atoms bounce around, things form themselves into complex molecules, which in turn form themselves into uh, proteins and enzymes, eventually we get life, we get DNA, we get the unwinding of a selfish gene, we get all that stuff. And all of that stuff, of course, is perfectly true. But we're assuming that it's the prime statement. So one of the big problems we have in philosophy and psychology and, and, and neuroscience is having begun firmly with it is as the only fully admissible objective reality, it is, we have this immense difficulty of how do we arrive at this I am? Because I am means a I'm a person. I means person. I am is personhood. Consciousness, that's what I am means. So we have this immense difficulty. Out of all these bouncing atoms and unwinding enzymes, how do we arrive at consciousness? It's a problem. Now, if we'd begun the other way around, if we said, actually, consciousness is the first thing, I amness, behind everything is person. Everything is the, is the articulation and meaning of person. Everything is symbol between person. Everything is ultimately language and meaning. We'd have no trouble finding out what, where I am came from. We might have some difficulty with it is. We might have difficulty believing that it was anything that could be simply dully, flatly matter and not fully animated by some kind of personal joy. But we would, you know, that's, we'd start in a different place. So maybe I am is the name. But just to cut to the chase, you know that it was such a sacred name that they felt they couldn't say it. They wrote down four letters, later known as the Tetragrammaton, and said these four letters. And of course they didn't pronounce them. So they wrote Adonai in every time those four letters, meaning I am, came up. Until one day, a Jewish man, fully aware of all of that, dared to say them. He said, Abraham rejoiced and saw my day. And they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and do you know Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Ego Amy in Greek, Yahweh in Hebrew, I am. And we know that he was doing that deliberately because John tells us that they picked up stones to kill him. So actually, the promise did come true. He did come down. He did take a name. He did take the risk that the name would be taken up, abused, and misused. And he was himself taken up, abused, and misused. And his name is still now being abused and misused. And yet he thought it was worth it if somehow his I am could meet your I am and you could know him by name. I put a bit of that into this sonnet on O Adonai, and then I want to read you some poems by some other people.
O Adonai. Unsayable. You chose to speak one tongue. Unseeable. You gave yourself away. The Adonai. The Tetragrammaton grew by a wayside in the light of day. O oh, you who dared to be a tribal god, to own a language, people, and a place, who chose to be exploited and betrayed, if so you might be met with face to face. Come to us here, who would not find you there, who chose to know the skin and not the pith, who heard no more than thunder in the air, who marked the mere events and not the myth. Touch the bare branches of our unbelief and blaze again like fire in every leaf. Think of those two antiphons. O sapientia, omnia, everywhere, everything. O Adonai, this bush blazing right here to Moses. This people, this language, this place, finally this tiny seed unfolding in the womb of Mary. The scandal, as they say, of particularity. It's only a scandal if you don't always know that it's also omnia. It's the two together. Only poetry can take us there. And I'd like to read you a poem by John Donne, a great hero of mine, which I put fairly early in this collection. In fact, I put it for the 3rd of December. It's John Donne's poem on the Annunciation. And uh, it's a very daring poem for its time because Protestant England at that point, um, you know, we're trying to, they're sort of very embarrassed about Mary and certainly about addressing Mary directly, but Donne uh, nevertheless does so in the turn of this sonnet. Um, he tries to contemplate, this is a great poem because at the Annunciation he thinks about Christ tiny in the womb, which is something we don't often think about. So Annunciation by John Donne. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is, all, everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he'll wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived, yea, Thou art now thy maker's maker and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark and shutst in little room immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. It's an extraordinary poem. I mean, it's quite you know, dense and complex, but I love the, the playing with all, that all which, that all which always is all everywhere. Can you hear that, whoa, 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 you know, big reverberating omnia? Then you get all this kind of contracted down. Now, 
I once had a conversation with the poet Seamus Heaney about how, we, how, how poetry actually lives and works in people, as opposed to being just printed on a page or, or worse still, studied in a university somewhere. Um, when does it actually become poetry? We both agreed that it first becomes poetry when it shimmers into the air and is spoken out loud. But he then added something. He said, most people don't necessarily remember a whole poem. And you never get a whole poem on the first reading anyway. But he said what happens, he thinks, is that certain phrases from a poem, the ones that you need, enter deeply into you. And he says the poem really becomes a poem, not when you're reading it or thinking about it as a poem, but when you're out in the middle of, some, of life, you're doing something, you're seeing somebody, you're looking at a horizon or a landscape or getting onto a bus, and suddenly a line from a poem that you read, perhaps a long time ago, comes into your mind, a phrase, and absolutely clarifies things for you. You remember who you are and what you're about. And he offers, this was Heaney's phrase, he said, poetry offers phrases that feed the soul. Now, I included this poem of John Donne's partly because of that last line. When I first read this in the sixth form, I didn't get the whole poem at all, but I did get immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. I thought there was something amazing about having the word immensity and the word dear, this small diminutive in the same, and cloistered and womb, to think of the womb as a cloister. So we've all coming out, if you think of the womb as a cloister, then you know, we've all come from a deep, beautiful, inner, contemplative cloister with the sound of our mother's hearts and the rhythm and tides of her blood. And maybe sometimes when we're in an actual outward and visible cloister, we're touching on something of that peace and bliss, extraordinary poem immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. And then he has all those beautiful things about how Mary was in, his, in, in Christ's mind before, before time was created. So that's quite a, a, a powerful and beautiful poem. And let me just go now to a poem about Mary and the baby, which is by um, a modern American poet called Lucy Shaw. And I don't know about you, but um, much as I love all the classic great, usually Renaissance, paintings of the Nativity, which we'll all see in the fine art Christmas cards that will doubtless be falling through our doors in the next few weeks. They do angels beautifully. You know, Botticelli, you can't fault his angels, you know. Beautifully luminous Virgin Mary. They occasionally do shepherds quite well as well. You think they're lesser. Those, those, those high Renaissance artists seem to be a little less acquainted with actual, real, uh, rough-life shepherds. But... Boy, do they come a cropper with the babies. You really have to say, these guys clearly, they may have begotten children in their time, but I don't think they were ever around at the birth. And they certainly, you know, they paid a little bit of money for the kid to be put out to a wet nurse, but I don't think they were interested until you know, the children became rather you know, handsome young men and then we're, I'll, I'll be in, in painting studios. They don't know. So what do you get? You get these fantastic, and then you get the Christ child. Looks like a stiff little wooden doll supposed to be newborn, looks about two already, is dressed in tunical and dalmatic and, you know, the complete, oh, you know, I hope you like my frilly cotter for Advent, you know, and, and he's, he's holding up a, like this, isn't he, you know, looking, you know, saying, I really know what's happening now, I'm going to be a blessing, yeah. and they, this is supposed to be an infant who doesn't even have speech, infants without speech. I just feel that if a woman had painted any of those paintings, they wouldn't be like that. <laughs> Well, here is a woman painting something for you, I think, quite extraordinary, and making a link so subtly between what he does in coming as a child and what he will do. And the whole poem is called Kenosis, 
which of course is the Greek word for the emptying of Jesus. Though he was found in form equal to God, he did not cling to equality with God, but emptied himself. And this poem for me more than makes up for the uh, problems in all those Christmas card paintings. Kenosis by Lucy Shaw. In sleep, his infant mouth works in and out. He's so new. His silk skin has not yet been roughed by plane and wooden beam, nor so far has he had to deal with human doubt. He is in a dream of nipple found, of blue-white milk, of curving skin, and pulsing in his ear the inner throb of a warm heart's repeated sound. His only memories float from fluid space, so new. He has not pounded nails, hung a door, broken bread, felt rebuff, bent to the lash, wept for the sad heart of the human race. Isn't that an amazing poem? <laughs> so good. And I think reading that really made me think about that self-emptying. There's a great sermon by Lancelot Andrews about this, about the verbum infant, he calls him, the word without a word. The word had to learn everything from Mary. He had to lisp, he had to learn to speak. But here he is so tiny and his only memories, these float from fluid space. So she sees that and she brings out in us that sense we have of, you know, the, the newborn thing, just beautifully. And yet, quietly, Delicately, she looks forward with us to what it was he came to do. And by thinking about how he'll grow up, if you like, as apprenticed to Joseph as a carpenter, she appears at one level only to be speaking of those things that he'll learn how to do, to handle a plane and wooden beam, to hammer, to pound nails, to hang a door. But you know that already she sees the cross. Wooden beam comes first, pounding nails, and then extraordinary, right at the end of the line, hung there at the end of the line is the phrase, hung a door. And of course you can read that about a carpenter learns to hang a door, and learning to hang a door is a proper thing for a carpenter to do. But surely there is this other sense that he hung himself a door that when he opened wide his arms on the cross, he was doing so because he was also saying, I am the door of the sheepfold. In fact, of course, the gospel makes it even clearer that as he died, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that veil which excluded us from the Sanctus Sanctorum, from the Holy of Holies, and that he opened that way and passed into the heavens for us. But all that is kind of in potential. And she doesn't let the, any of that take away from the newness of the new baby and his complete connection with us in our humanity. Um, and there's a very beautiful turn at the end of this poem, wept for the sad heart of the human race. Because of course we all have the experience when we look at a baby, and a newborn baby, all of us feel this. Those of us, you know, we see this tiny precious child 
And we think about its innocence in the sense of not knowing, in the sense that this child has, is in the, you know, has found the nipple and what more do you need in life, and is cuddled and loved by a mother and its flesh is gentled and tendered. And we think of all the hard places in life, the roughness, the difficulties, the misunderstandings. You know, as Hamlet says, the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. And we feel compassion for the little babe. And we, we say, I know some of that is going to happen to you. And I wish it didn't. I wish somehow I could, like your mother, I could gentle and protect you. I want. And if you are the actual parent of the child and the child is sick or hurt or coughing or suffering and you can't explain it to them, what's the first thing you wish? You immediately wish, if only I could go through that for you. I'd rather that happen to me than to you. That's the natural impulse of love, is it not? So we are used to thinking that we are the person who knows many things and looks at the baby in compassion. What she tells us at the end of this poem is that this baby is the one who will look in compassion on us, on all of us. That God in Christ will look at us, each one of us, with just that tender compassion that we look at a baby. He had compassion on the crowd. Jesus wept. And that whereas we might wish somehow to go through it for the baby, exact, somehow to understand it from within, somehow to make it better by feeling it ourselves, God in Christ will do exactly that. That's what he will do on the cross. And all that is somehow gently hinted, it seems to me, in this poem. My goodness, time is flying as we have fun. Can I, can I do one more poem perhaps before we... Um, we, we, we draw stumps. Um, I'll, I'll finish with, with um, one of my own again, uh, uh, the last of the O Advent um, antiphons, which is, of course, O Emmanuel, that somehow sums up the others. Um, and, um, of course, we have those O antiphons, probably the most familiar form for us, is... Um, is the, the, the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I, I, and I allude to that in the sonnet. Um, Emmanuel, of course, being with us. But uh, the antiphon goes, O Emmanuel, our King and our Lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Saviour, come and save us, O Lord our God. And this would be sung just before Christmas Eve, so just as we're thinking about Mary going into labour. Here's my sonnet in response to it. O come, O come, and be our God with us. O long-sought withness for a world without. O secret seed. O hidden spring of light, come to us, wisdom. Come, unspoken name. Come, root and key and king and holy flame. O quickened little wick, so tightly curled, be folded with us into time and place. Unfold for us the mystery of grace. And make a womb of all this wounded world. O oh, heart of heaven beating in the earth. O oh, tiny hope within our hopelessness. Come to be born. To bear us to our birth. 
to touch a dying world with new-made hands and make these rags of time our swaddling bands. I'll stop there. Thank you. Can we stay up here? I'll get my water. I've got Did I make? Um, no, I didn't. There's a number of translations. I, I, well, I did to some degree. I, I amalgamated different translations. For example, and some things are, are untranslatable. So, for example, um, the, uh, the one which begins, O Oriens, is sometimes translated, O Morning Star, and sometimes translated, O Dayspring. I prefer Dayspring because... Um, I love the way Dayspring, just in English, happens to bring together light and water because of the other sense of the word spring. And in my own poem, I, I, I use that. I use the idea of light and light reflected on water. Um, but of course, no translation can actually pick up the other sense of Oriens, which is eastwardness, and the sense it has for us of orientation, of being reoriented. And there's a great deal that can be said about that. So, and. Some of the trans, sometimes, uh, there's a, the one that says, the O Sapientia, it says, uh, teach us the way of prudence, and it says, vi, well, viam prudentiam, right? So it's translated literally the way of prudence. But prudence is kind of an awful, shriveled, mean-minded little virtue for us now, where, you know, it's about keeping stuff back in the cupboard, or it's, or it's what Gordon Brown was supposedly doing, or whatever it was, <laughs> you know. But... Um, Medieval accounts of prudence were very different. So, so Thomas Aquinas says that prudence, he defines prudence somewhere as, um, as the ability so to remember the past and imagine the future as to live vigorously in the present. You know, it's about having just enough awareness of the other dimensions of time to be fully and thoroughly awake to the one you're in. Well, that's not what we mean by prudence. So I, I, I think the people who say, who translate VM Prudentium as way of truth are probably better than the literal translation because the word itself has, has shriveled in English. Um, on the other hand, there are Latin words that are just so beautiful we can't do them now. So in the O'Clavis, when he says, come and lead the prisoners from the, from the prison house and those who dwell in the, dark, in the shadow of death. Um, in Latin, it's, uh, veni et educ vinctam in cartre. So educ is an extraordinary word. It means draw out. We get the word educe from it, but we also get the word education from it because education is meant to be drawing out gently and beautifully the potential that is in each person as opposed to seeing them as tiny little pictures to be crammed in, you know, <laughs> crammed with facts. I mean, it's oh, you, you'd think under the present regime that, you know, that... Um, Hard times had never been written, you know. There it is, <laughs> Thomas Gradgrind. Anyway, so a duke draw out, and it's particularly beautiful in that one because when it says, you know, if you've been in, in the, again in Latin in that one, sedentes in tenebres, um, we translate as those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. But sedentes is, of course, where we get sedentary from, 
And the relationship between darkness and not being able to move at all, the darkness of depression, and you know, if you're, if you're disabled, if you can't get up and you can't move around, there's a mental darkness that comes out. And if you've been lying in darkness like that for a long time, you can't have just somebody rush in and switch on the lights and say, oh, Orient, it's Jesus, look, don't worry about the darkness, bling, Jesus, you're fixed now, off we go. You can't do that. You have to educate. You have to draw out. You have to gently lead somebody who's been in prison for a long time into a kind of light. And the Latin kind of does that <coughs> with one word. takes about 15 words in English. Sorry, long answer to a short question. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> 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 I've never heard of these. Oh, well, within the Church of England, happily, they've been revived. In the book um, Times and Seasons, which is the sort of book that should be available to your parish priest to do liturgy with, there's a beautiful service based on the antiphons in there, which you know, is one of the officially approved services of the Church of England. They're certainly used in, 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 um, in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they are, I do print them all in Latin and in English in this book, uh, I have to say. Um, and... Um, uh, you can certainly, if you go on YouTube and things like that, you can hear them sung, because they were all set to plain chant. And they are really beautiful pieces of plain chant. And they're very good to listen to. And as I say, they were sort of semi-translated, five of them, but not all seven. Um, and in the wrong order, I have to say, in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because the order is actually very beautiful in terms of how they work moving forward. But it's also beautiful looking backwards. Because if you've sung them all in Latin... And, you know, in a Latin psalter, you'd have the big O for the O antiphon. And then each of the titles, Sapientia, Adonai, um, uh, Rex, Clavis, um, and so on, would be in their beautifully all illuminated capitals. When you look back and you just finally sung O Emmanuel, and look back at how it was Rex before that, and Oriens before that, and Clavis before that, Radix, Adonai, Sapientia, you would realise that it spelt something. That it said... Ero, crass, tomorrow I will come. After come, 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 tomorrow I will come. Ero, I will come, crass. Crass as in procrastinate, uh, tomorrow, yeah. Mm. So at Vespers, I think it was, um, in, in, in the Benedictine cycle of things, so when Benedictine monast monasteries, these were set um, so that starting on um, the 17th... Well, if you were anywhere in continental Europe, starting on the 17th of December. Bizarrely, if you were in England, it was the 16th of December because the English, just to be different, decided to have eight. And uh, in the serum use in England, there was an extra eighth one for the Virgin Mary herself, which went, oh, Virgo. Um, so, but anyway, most places it was the 17th. And then each day, as you got to that point, if you like, in what would be even song for us, where you sing the Magnificat. You know that in, in the monastic offices, like in Compline as well, you have a little antiphon on each side, um, which is repeated. So you would sing it, sing the whole of the Magnificat, which of course is the fullness of the promise of his coming, and then sing it again at the end of the Magnificat. And um, it, weirdly... In all the liturgical revisions, when Cramner was making the Book of Common Prayer, probably just by a clerical oversight, when he's literally transferring stuff off, he, he kept, for the 16th of December, 
in the, in the lectionary at the you know, back of the original book, the words O sapientia, which of course were faithfully reproduced, bizarrely, in the in Cambridge University diary, you know, because they just don't change these things in Cambridge. So, on the day I wrote this sonnet, which had a whole other personal thing to do, uh, somebody I'd written it for and so on, I got out my diary, having written the sonnet on the train back down from Edinburgh, and to see what I was supposed to be doing next. And I had written it on the 16th of December without being aware of it. And in my diary it said, O sapientia. <laughs> but it, it appears in all kinds of lectures, and we don't actually do anything with it, but it's just there it is, you know, O sapientia, is that day. Yeah, in fact, I had intended, I ran up time, I was going to read Robert Hayden's poem and G.K. Chesterton's, the bit from, as a pair. I mean, I don't think we've got time to do it. But the Robert Hayden is astonishing yes. poem, yeah. Oh, is that a request? <laughs> Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> well, why don't we, when I said thank you, why don't you read it before we... Well, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, that's a big question. I do, well, I, first of all, I think, I think he wanted us to know that the holy, I mean, we can think of God as transcendent, yeah? And in a way, that's the right thing to do. God is in one sense, utterly beyond all things, beyond every category. You mustn't make a graven image of him. Nothing, no single item, however splendid or beautiful in the cosmos, is ever adequate to or can be set over against God, okay? So there is this utter transcendence and beyondness of God. And that's a very important thing, and it runs right through the Old Testament. However, <laughs> I think by appearing in the burning bush and not consuming the bush, one of the things, which is probably the most important thing for us now in our current ecological environment, uh, one of the things he was saying is that do not use my transcendence as a stick to beat nature with. Do not say that because I'm called by a God who is beyond all things, all things don't matter. Don't trash this world. Don't, um, don't, don't dismiss it. Don't think that holiness supersedes or overrides it. Not only am I in this bush and it is not consumed, but it is more thoroughly itself, but I will come down into the darkness of Mary's womb and I will be born and I will not destroy, overwrite or set at naught my beautiful creation. I will set it right and I will rise bodily and I will not have you using your understanding of my holy fire to burn what Dante called the sacred and holy flesh. So of all the most appalling things we ever did, uh, in, 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 in the long, hideous, bloody history of our misunderstanding of our saviour, which you know, is, broadly speaking, the history of the Christian church. Um, burning people 
was the single most idolatrous thing we could possibly have done, apart from the sheer pain and the agony. The idea of yet setting flame to the flesh which is enlightened from within by the light of God was a hideous and demonic parody in a sense of what God didn't do by being in the bush. And of course the New Testament equivalent of the moment of the burning bush is of course the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. In fact, it is the same moment, if you will understand it. I mean, you realise Moses was there when he's up the mountain, they're on a mountain, this great light in which the fullness of God in Christ is speaking, words of comfort. Moses is there. Of course it's because for Moses, that is the burning bush. If you could have seen the other side of the burning bush, he would have seen Peter and James and John standing there. And he would have seen the face of Christ. It was the same moment in eternity. But he, you know, he was before that, so he couldn't see it. He could only see. For God is very explicit. You will only see the back parts of me. We've seen the front. <laughs> We've seen the, the glory of God shining on us in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think the first thing we're commanded by that is to say that all flesh is holy. <laughs> Don't destroy it. It's only the 6th of December and already I think I've become a black belt in shopping. <laughs> and uh, I just feel that you've taken us out of all that. Ah. Reminded us that Advent is a season in the vocative. Mm. Yes. This is about a reminder that we are incomplete. Mm. And the poetry helps us distill ourselves enough to find out what we might be longing for. Mm. Uh, and I've needed that, but I don't know well, this lot here, but I've badly needed to hear that, so thank you so much. Um, my great poetic hero, W.A. Jordan, once said that a poem must always be more interesting than anything you can say about it. Mm. He'd obviously never met Malcolm Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I simply want to say that if the church didn't have him, it would be essential to create him. And uh, I want to thank you, uh, Malcolm, on behalf of us all here, for uh, poetically taking us into the heartland of what Christmas is about. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll do this poem. But just before he does that, let me just uh, say that there's a, a sheet up here. All the forums uh, that are coming up from February until July. The next one's in February with Padre Tumor, who's another uh, poet and wonderful writer, so I do um, uh, commend that to you. On Tuesday this week, under the dome, so in the cathedral itself, uh, Rowan Williams will be speaking uh, on what a good Christmas might look like. What a Christian Christmas might look like. And obviously, for all other adult learning events, please do pick up a program or visit the website. But um, the books will arrive, or they have arrived, for you to buy, or should you wish to. But before they come up, would you read us the Yeah. Um, so this is a request for, for Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden, which is the poem I set yesterday. And um, I've put a number of poems in here that aren't explicitly Christian at all, but which seem to me to give a glimpse of something that opens up the heart of our mystery. Robert Hayden, uh, uh, an African-American poet, uh, 1913 to 1980, um, spent time with W.H. Auden and studied with him. 
um, recalling his childhood um, in a poor district of Detroit and his father getting up early on a Sunday and he just says, Sunday's two and you know his father was doing hard manual labor all week but in order to, to get the house warm. But it's extraordinary um, poem, I think. Those winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When rooms were warm, he'd call. And slowly, I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices. <laughs>